Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Life of the Lost. I'm Sam. And I'm Megan. And this week's episode is sponsored by Brown Lab Media. Brown Lab Media is a creative community helping to promote and create original content, personal brands, businesses, or anything media related by people of color. So if you have a chance, feel free to check them out. The link is www.brownlabmedia.com. All right, moving on to this week's episode. Would you like us? Would you like to introduce the person we're interviewing today? Yeah. So today we are interviewing Joseph, a Peruvian adoptee who actually lives in Peru with his birth family. So I nice. think that'll be an interesting spin. Awesome. All right. And let's begin in three, two, one. What makes you super cool is just that you live in Peru with your birth family. Like I don't know anybody else. Yeah, um, it's actually not as uncommon as you would think. You know, there are a few people who, you know, even if they don't live here now, have come down here and, you know, have lived, um, right, with their biological families. Some even, you see, so I actually live in the city, right? I I don't live in Lima, but I live in Callao, which, you know, I, I usually say Callao to Lima is like the New Jersey to New York, right? You know, mm. um, you know, it's... Uh, greater New York metropolitan area and down here you have the greater Lima metropolitan area right so um, you know you get on a bus here you're in Lima within 20-25 minutes uh, so yeah um, there are other adoptees that have lived down here um, and they might not have necessarily lived in the city so what's the difference between living in the city versus living in the countryside kind of like living in the United States also right you know there's Kind of a big difference. I don't know, would you consider Minnesota the countryside? Sam does. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think it is just because it's um like countryside to me is like farms and like hills. So I guess I see it like three different phases, right? It's like the the urban, like city, the suburban, and then the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, no, of course. Um and New Jersey's primarily like suburb, right? And um I guess you could say pretty much all of Lima and Callao are kind of suburby slash urban, right? Um, they're kind of in there. I mean, nobody has lawns, right? Yeah. Um, that's something that just never, I don't, you know, I honestly don't know. I mean, you know, I don't want to sound ignorant or anything, but, you know, the, the, um, the Latin American countries I've been to. So, you know, I just came back from Ecuador. I've been to Chile. I've been to Colombia. You know, it's the structure of how things are in the United States suburbs, for example, right? Having like a lawn and a backyard and everything like that. I haven't seen much of that. Then again, I also want to say I haven't seen a lot of it, you know, um, to be able to really have like a good handle on this. You know, I'm sure there's somebody else out there who would be able to, you know, enlighten us a little bit more on this topic. But or, you know, it's either one extreme or the other, or you do have like farms and stuff, you know, you're talking about like countryside, countryside, right? Um, then you have farms with just like a lot of area and stuff and rural Peru would be like that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's like, you know, one extreme or the other, you either have like urban or you have just farmland and stuff like that kind of mid tier suburb stuff. It, it's out there. I guess like a Chosica might be one example within Lima. You actually have like, you know, a driveway and you might have a backyard and stuff. Maybe some of the more developed parts of Lima might try to mimic that kind of lifestyle. But other than that, you really just have like two extremes. So, yeah. Okay. So my, my adoption <laughs> story, right? Um, 
yeah, so I'm I'm down here, right? Um, part of the reason I'm here is, um, yeah, right, to spend more time with my biological family. Obviously, I didn't grow up with them. Um, I grew up with my, uh, you know, parents in New Jersey, right? So I'm from New Jersey, flipped in New Jersey to be exact. And um, my mom passed away when I was 13 from lung cancer. And then my father passed away when I was 21 from, well, a lot of problems. Um, I would argue that it's because he never really got over my mom dying. And, you know, he let a lot of demons catch up with him. And eventually he, you know, the cause of his death was from like a heart attack. Um, and that was, you know, um, since then I was, I've kind of been on my own, you know, no immediate family, I guess you could say, right? Um, and, you know, we know how American families are, right? They're all kind of scattered throughout different parts of America and stuff. So um, after, right, so that was 2011, right? Um, uh, after that, right, I was really just kind of like finishing up college. Then I worked for a year. Then I came down here for the first time, right, in 2013. And then, um, I went back, I did a master's degree, then um, I came back down here for good in 2016, uh, and I've, I've been here since, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I've come back to the United States, right, for visits, but I've been down here living here, right, and, um, and working since 2016. So um, that's my story in a nutshell, right? I guess those would be like the big main points and stuff of my adoption story. Um, I do still have like, you know, a good relationship, right, with my family in the United States. Um, I think they're entirely understanding considering the fact that, you know, right, I don't have an immediate family anymore. And like I said, everybody does kind of live, you know, uh, dispersed throughout most of the United States. I've got family in Florida, got family in California. Um, really, my, the only family, right, um, uh, that would have been close was my godmother, right? I'm still pretty close to my godmother who lives in Brooklyn. Um, and I think I have a cousin out there also, but everybody else is kind of all over the place. So um, yeah, no, I, um, when I came down here for the first time in 2013, I met family from the Sierra and Peru, right? We're talking about countryside. That's really countryside, right? Some of you might know that area. Um, and, you know, I didn't meet any siblings and unfortunately i just missed my mom by a few years and my dad by a few years also so um yeah i don't have of my four parents i don't have any left um uh they because my sister was living in lima and i didn't you know get a chance to meet her on the first trip because i was in the sierra and then when i came back to lima to get back to the united states it was really really quick so um they gave me her contact information and then summer of 2013 um me and my sister since then me and my sister have been in contact and i uh what do you call it you know she got a laptop and we spoke with each other through skype i was still learning spanish at the time you know i had only taken what is it basic spanish before that when i first went for my family search and um since summer of 2013 when i started speaking to my sister my spanish got really good. Um, I went back and eventually finished the program I had started. Did you only use talking. like, did you only learn Spanish from talking with her? Yeah, I would say that that's probably the best way to learn is just having somebody you can talk with every day, right? 
Yeah. You know, um, language learning is just something that is not necessarily difficult. It's just time consuming and requires consistency. So, yeah, I mean, even when I went back to, because I, I actually studied Spanish in Lima, mm. right? Um, the first time I'd gone back, I stayed with the host family. I didn't know my biological family at that time. Right? I hadn't done my search, um, but I stayed with a host family and I, you know, studied Spanish only basic level. I was only there for what, six weeks the first time. And um, then when I, you know, the second year in 2014, I come back for the second time, I finished that program. But this time, instead of staying with host families or in tourist areas, I stay with my sister in Callao. And that's when I finished the program. And, um, but by then they're just like, wow, you know, I even skipped a level because they're just like, okay, so you, you've been speaking Spanish a lot. So, you know, you're, you're getting pretty good. So, and now I'm here and stuff and I've mm. taken university classes in Spanish and it's starting to get to be second nature. Um, like that. So, well, that's, that's like awesome to hear. Like, I don't know. I feel like I'm so like, I, I don't really, I haven't really like. I don't know, gotten to know you. So just getting inundated with all that information is just like, I just have so many questions, I guess. Well, to, please to, ask away. Yeah, no, to start out, I was curious, like, do you remember um, your time in uh, New Jersey? Oh, yeah. Um, right. So I'm still very close friends with, um, right, all of the people. You, know, well, you see, the thing is, my best friends came from high school. Um, the lifelong friends, I've got a few there right um my two best friends matt and dan right um dan now lives in massachusetts matt still lives in central jersey now you know we grew up in north jersey um uh yeah no i certainly do it i don't think it's been enough time to say that i've forgotten about new jersey yet. like what was the age that, the age range that you were in new jersey um i was in new jersey for the first 25 um uh, was it right yeah first 25 years of my life so, oh wow yeah i, I was um, I, I was under the assumption that he was you were there to like i don't know your your teenage years but i guess i don't know i guess now that i'm thinking about it time timeline wise I, things wouldn't add up i don't know <laughs> yeah or you know what actually uh i you know to elaborate on that a little bit right yeah. i i lived in new jersey until i was 23 and then between 24 25 right i'm in new york city but I would still go back and I mean, that's still right in the greater New York metropolitan area. And I would still regularly go back to visit my friends in New Jersey. And yeah, um, we're, you know, we're still tight. And especially during the Corona virus yeah. crisis and stuff, we, you know, a few of them have lost their jobs, right? So we're just, you know, watching movies, you know, with um, my friends, Gus and Brian, who are also considered like brothers to me right there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we watch Rick and Morty you know, every so often we're trying to, you know, finish that off. So yeah, we're just, uh, you know, um, we're still in contact. And every time I go back, um, I always write, they're basically the family I go back to, huh. to put it in perspective. Right. So I feel that. Um, so I'm just curious, like, like, why did you want to move back to Peru? Right. I guess the, um, right. Being without an immediate family. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter how close friends can be, I still think there's a sense in which, right, you want that regular, you know, um, you know, I, I guess you want that regular um, contact with somebody really close. 
and you know my sister was um you know my sister actually had lost her sister right um who was kind of like her guardian and everything so um you know, okay so basically my sister grew up in the lima metropolitan area um i she wouldn't be like somebody who grew up in the countryside um so we started to see a lot of like similarities we you know i think that's what's made it a little easier for us to kind of connect at least in a cultural sense right um and then she had also lost her guardian recently like literally two months before i had gotten there in 2013 um she had just lost her sister so it's like you know we were both coming from a situation where we had experienced loss and um I'm like, you know, this is just seems like the next logical step, perhaps to heal, right? Um, from like, you know, a lot of life traumas. And uh, yeah, I think that, you know, other than that, I think it's been an excellent experience, to say the least. Wow. So sorry, I was trying to get a perspective of, of uh, timeline and just like a process of how one thing led to another. Um, so how old were you when I guess you realized that, you know, your, your mom wasn't well, like I'm just curious, like the, the mindset of, of, of these particular like, um, sections of your life and just seeing them like, you know, obviously like flow in a timeline. Um, yeah. So I was 13, um, okay. when my mom passed away and the thing about cancer, right. Um, don't know if any of you have had experience with cancer or people who have had cancer, kind of just creeps up on you. And usually when symptoms do start to show, that's usually the, you know, there's not a lot of hope afterward. Um, so yeah, it really kind of happened fast. We had no idea um, that, you know, so it was like good six months before that happened. I remember in January, February of 2003, right? um, that's when she started going in for surgeries and different doctor's appointments, and eventually chemotherapy. And then by the end of June, the beginning of July, she was dead. So, you know, that's just to kind of give you a timeline. You know, we were just literally just finding out at the beginning of the year and by halfway through the year, you know, that's all she wrote. So, yeah, I I, I would say we didn't really know, right? Um, kind of just creeped up on us. Although we were told by people that Christmas, right, when we still used to go to like these family, you know, big family gatherings and stuff that um you know she didn't look good around christmas time mm. but um I, I you know i was i was kind of in la la land and i also think that i don't think i really accepted it either until like you know the last day right um you know still thinking oh you know all the you know cancer organs can be replaced by donors I, you know you're, you just hold on to that hope and everything and stuff till like the very end um well especially but, at yeah. 13 you know, like 13 is like your prime age, I feel like, of just like hanging out with your friends and not really thinking that you have too much to worry about, you know, for the most part. And then something like, like that gigantic kind of comes on your plate. It's it's kind of yeah. hard to understand. You know, I mean, it's um, I mean, there's a lot I can certainly talk about my um, my teenage years. Right. Because that most of my teenage years were spent with my dad. And I feel like, you know, my life would have been very, very different. Um you know, if my mom had actually been in my life during my teenage years, not just, you know, those are times that, you know, um, you finish high school, you start thinking about college, you know, a lot of 
you know, things change, you start dating people, you know, things like that happen. And unfortunately, the unfortunate thing um, about a lot of adoptees in general, I think, is just the big generation gap between their parents and them and stuff. Mm-hmm. My dad, my dad listened to doo I mean, yeah, he was, you know, he was a young guy in the 70s and everything, but, you know, his teenage years were a long time ago, right? Like early 60s, just to kind of give you a perspective. And there is a huge disconnect. And I don't think he handled it, you know, um, the best he could have, right? Um, You know, a teenager and stuff. I mean, we definitely got along, right? And I definitely appreciate, you know, the um you know the years that we spent together and you know um yeah there was a certain there was a certain something about him and the way that he you know his kind of like very libertarian or uh right kind of way of you know if if you screw up it's on you kind of thing i think my mom would have been a little bit more interventionalist in how i was raised my dad was just like okay you do this you know that's that's your problem or you know it's um very different way of thinking i think you know um so you know i do sometimes contemplate how how would my teenage years have been if my mom had been there but you know it's neither here nor there um you know so i'm here and you know i i like the experiences i've had in life up until this point for sure was there was there ever a time like that you have in mind that that maybe you you were talking to your dad and and um you you he because of how you explain uh, explain who he, how the, the kind of person that he is. Was there ever like a moment that you know really hit you in terms of just being like, wow, like, thank, like, thanks, dad, for, you know, expecting maybe like some like a different response or just maybe come to the realization that you know, like you said, like he he is a certain kind of person per se, and and that uh that it, I guess it won't change. Right. So um. You know, the, the thing about my dad was he was always very quiet. He was one of the more quiet parents. And I don't know, like, you know, I know one thing that used to upset me was that he didn't seem like he was ever really, like, you know, proud of me for accomplishments or anything like that. You know, it's something, you know, like, I think that kids definitely need, um, especially teenagers or anybody for that matter. But these are things that he wouldn't talk about openly, but he would certainly talk about them with other people and stuff, you know. So, I mean, he did certainly, you know, know, even even if he was like, you know, extremely quiet around me, he still spoke highly of me around other people. And that's something I'm pretty appreciative about for sure. So, but, um, you know, really strong kinds of like connections like that. um, That's not something, you know, I, I can say like, you know, that's not something I really felt like I had throughout my teenage years so do you feel like there's a connection so because you're living with your birth family which it's it's so funny because like when I talk to you about it like I mean so many people live with their birth family and I'm like I know nobody so to me it's just like so interesting um and just kind of diving into that for a minute how because you said you went there because you kind of wanted to feel a sense of family do you Mm -hmm. feel like there's the same sense of family that you had in like New Jersey versus Peru um is it different or maybe how is it different Right. Um, so there are a few things that are different, but I think I I don't think anything can ever replace New Jersey. Um, that was a whole different kind of dynamic there. I had parents, older parents, 
now here I'm with a sister who's older, but not older by much, you know, we're still peers. And then I have, um, I'm living with a nephew, not my sister's son. It's actually another brother, son, right? You know, we, we've read, we've talked about child circulation mm -hmm. before. This is a prime example of that, mm -hmm. right? You know, he's from the rural countryside. He came to live with us, you know, to reap the opportunities of what Lima has to offer, right? And, uh, you know, he went to school and now he's a bartender and he's working now, actually. So he's actually not home. He's working, <laughs> which is good. So, yeah. Um, uh, what do you call it? In, it? How is the family different? Um, so yeah, I never grew up with any siblings. Um, so learning how to share, learning that arguments aren't the end of the world. Um, you know, those are things that I've learned and stuff. Um, and, you know, I've literally learned, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now, right? And these are things I'm just learning over the past four years for that matter. So I think this has definitely been, you know, um, a good experience for my own development and well-being in the long run and stuff. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I feel the same way. I, you know, I was uh, the only child and I never had to, like, worry about siblings. Everything was always mine all the time. And because it's like I, I have a single mom, you know, and I, I'm a male, obviously. So I think that that kind of dynamic, it kind of gives me a little bit more of, uh, in my, in my, you know, obviously my family dynamic, a little bit more of like, uh, uh, you know, cause like you were kind of the man of the house in though. a way. Like yeah. there wasn't, and she's not very dominant at all. She's very submissive. You're way more dominant. So you, I feel like you it's kind a lot of, of things that play too. Right. Because yeah. it's like, you know, that's, that's my baby. You know, obviously mom, it's like, my, that's my son, you know, like, you know, so that obviously sure. can play too. And obviously I subconsciously, I might've realized that too, at a certain extent too, or I'm just like be, be able to play, play, you know, play play that play that card um but uh dang i forgot what i was gonna say <laughs> uh, uh oh yeah sorry so yeah so i definitely know like recently you know i'm um, having to learn how to coexist especially with like you know coronavirus and and all that stuff having to be like more in inside more um and having to cope with with that sharing aspect of uh being in a in a place where there's not just me anymore mm -hmm. and i could like i definitely relate you know like i've had hard times too um being able to delegate certain dynamics when people clash because that's inevitable right and for me i guess i i'd never kind of really had to be like oh okay like let's let's be equal let's be fair instead of my way kind of but like it being used to it kind of low-key being my way even though things were fair in a way but I guess that's no, absolutely. But yeah, I totally understand that, right? Um, and the thing is, I'm I'm also used to getting my way, also, um, and realizing, you know, even if you do make good arguments, right, in favor of something, you know, emotions come into right play and stuff, and you know, a part of politics, right, is not necessarily having a good argument or saying the logical thing. It's also taking this irrationality into account and stuff. And that's something I'm constantly at odds with, right? Um, but, you know, and not necessarily with my sister or with my family, but just with Peru for that matter. Um, you know, and uh, it, it's certainly very, very different, right? Um, you know, as opposed to talking to, right, um, you know, maybe people who know you or, right? Yeah, just, and just using logic and arguments and stuff like that. But 
yeah, no, it's it's certainly something you learn, and you know, you can even come to appreciate even right because it only makes you more understanding of other people for sure. What do you think of what's going on, you know, down there right now? Like, is it, okay. is it as crazy as, I guess, not, I mean, I guess that suggests that it's not, but I was just curious, like, is it as crazy as kind of these videos I'm seeing? Because I know you only see sometimes videos, that, um, you know, one-sided sometimes, but not being there, I'm just kind of seeing other people's outlook on it. Okay, so, um, right, I mentioned earlier that I just got back from Ecuador. Mm -hmm. um, so I've actually been quarantining. And then they check up on you, right? Really? I just, I literally just got a call today, a random call. I was, I was told it was gonna not, not gonna be for another seven days from Tuesday, um, because it was Tuesday was already the week mark since I got back from Ecuador. They called me then. They called a lot of times on my cell phone, and you know, I thought it was just a telemarketer. Then they called me on the house phone. They're like, you know, be you home. You have any symptoms of COVID? Okay, cool. And then they mm -hmm. called me today, and now they're gonna call me one more time in three days. To make sure that i'm here and stuff so i'm, I'm pretty i guess i'm pretty impressed with how peru's handling this right all the literally all the international travelers have to do this mm -hmm. um so uh yeah and plus i've got homework because um i'm taking a few some really interesting classes actually as a right kind of like a non-degree open student at my old university but just online um latin american modern latin american history and then the geography of Latin America, learning some pretty interesting things there. Mm. And um, so I've just, you know, kind of been, you know, hanging low, you know, participating in the book club that we have every Tuesday. And, you know, um, I okay, so I can't really say I've been to the center of Lima to see the protests. Mm. I had a girlfriend um, between 2018 and 2019 and she was really into the protests. Mm -hmm. So I've gone to a few. And the protests do get like that, right? So this is nothing, from what I'm seeing online and stuff, mm -hmm. this is, you know, tear gas and rubber bullets. That's nothing new. Mm -hmm. So that's something that the protests generally get like that. We got hit with tear gas once. It's mm -hmm. kind of painful and everything. But um, that that's just kind of how they are. Now, what's different about this one is that I think all different social classes are getting involved. Okay. Usually, right, it was, you know, kind of more maybe the lower social classes, you know, the working classes that have taken to La Plaza de Armas, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas um, now it seems like even people from kind of like the nicer areas of Lima are also getting involved. Everybody is against this, right? Mm -hmm. I'm and, very, con I'm very interested. Like I, I, I genuinely don't know what's going on in Peru. Mm -hmm. Um, could wait? Could you maybe explain a little something about what I, what's going on? Okay. Yeah, I can. Um, I can try and do as much as I can in terms of like the whole big picture. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So the thing is, um, what you're seeing, the way international news reports on things a lot is that oh you know corrupt politician was ousted by congress so you know a lot of people right they just read that they're like oh good for congress and everything right they oust a corrupt politician and uh you know now the people are going to be happy but the thing is in this situation we have a situation where the congress is actually comprised of a lot of corrupt people themselves so and this president um, he had no political ambitions, right? Never wanted to run for president. He didn't even want to run for re-election now. 
the thing about him is that um, he was actually overseeing an anti-corruption task force um, that was going to potentially implicate a lot of these Congress people, if not remove a lot of them from power. And, you know, the Congress people who had actually tried to do this back in September and failed, but this time I guess they got the right number of votes to actually vote him out. And that's what happened. Um, and, you know, so there are a number of things at play with Peruvian politics. A lot of corruption and stuff um, has a lot to do with um, organized crime, right? So in the uh, in Callao area, we've got one called Los Cuellos Blancos, right, which is right, translates to the the white necks, and they it's like a gang group. Uh, have a lot of yeah, you know, um, I guess it's more like you know mafia type, okay, you know, like Godfather like level, type right? of stuff. Yeah. The white yeah. necks, <laughs> mafia, the white like... necks. Huh. Yeah, like you know, you think Godfather, Goodfellas. Yeah, that's uh, like those big, big guys. You know, like you have gangs, like they they just hustle every, like you know, they just control a few blocks. But like mafia is like something like international, like really is big guy. Or maybe they're not. It's this specific one. But when I think of mafia, I think of like like you said, the Godfather, the Italian mob, the '90s, and like oh, yeah. New York. Those kind of like enterprises that are very rooted in bigger things. Yeah, um, systematic corruption right, mm. that actually goes into, you know, um, feeds into the political system itself. So you have those guys, um, you have cartels, right, they're all over the place also. Um, and the big thing that the international community well, is slowly finding out, this started in Brazil, is the case of Operation Car Wash. You know, you could go on Vox and look that up, then, you know, it's the... Um, so essentially, oh, like, is it um, that with the with the uh, gas the gas and and how they were bidding for like companies to take the who got the contract, but it's all it was all kind of rigged, and then they started systematically going in and like figuring it out. Is that all connected to a certain extent? It, it is entirely connected oh, to wow. what's going on here. In fact, the last three presidents, right? So Ollanta Humala, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, um. Uh, Alejandro Toledo, they are were all implicated in um, right doing deals with Odebrecht, right, which was that Brazilian company um, that was well. Really, Odebrecht was really one of the many companies that was involved in that whole web of corruption, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, they all got implicated. Um, Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of the former president, the president who was president when we were all getting adopted, right? Mm. He, um, you know, his daughter eventually got involved in politics, and so did the party, right, popular force down here. And they were a pretty strong party, right? They held a majority in um, Congress and a number of different governorships, but they've since lost a lot of credibility um, partially, you know, due to this, um, was it the scandal, right? The Odebrecht scandal for that matter. So, yeah. Um, so that certainly played a role here. And really at the end of the day, you know, who it is, the, the people who suffer are, you know, the common people who depended a lot on the infrastructure developments, the projects, right? Um, you know, what, what would happen is people would, you know, um, 
launder the money instead of actually putting it into good engineering. And then when a natural disaster happens, you know, uh, for example, a bridge that was here in El Rio Rimac, right, it just kind of crumbles. And then they go and they look at it, you know, and then survey the damage on an insurance company, whatever. They notice that, um, yeah, no, this is not engineered properly. You know, they did, they put just enough money into the construction project just to make sure that, you know, it, you know, it, it held for however long. And then, you know, Peru, which is you know, really prone to a lot of natural disasters, ranging from flooding, um, earthquakes, landslides, especially in the Sierra, uh, you know, this, yeah, it, things need to be done well, but you're always looking to kind of save money um, for whatever, you know, um, malicious reason there might be. And, you know, it, it really affects our ability to develop as a country. Have you, have you been like personally affected by that? I don't know, or, or know anybody who like maybe, I guess, cause I know that there were a lot of, um, like you said, projects that were supposed to start, but for whatever reason they're put on hold. I guess because the money isn't isn't there, right? Because they would like, I think that's what I heard. Like they would set like future kind of things. This is going to be like this. It's going to set X, Y, and Z jobs, and but like it sure. never happens. So yeah, no, they just freeze, or people don't want to do business anymore with the company who was funding it. So it's this is like you know the controversial aspect about it. So if you let the corruption continue, you let the project continue, and you let those jobs stay. And I feel like. Some of those politicians thought they were doing good, right? You know, um, quote, doing good and just allowing it to continue while buying into the system, right? Is that the right way of handling things though? I don't think so, right? But, you know, it's, uh, it, it, that's essentially where the Peruvian presidents, the most recent Peruvian presidents all kind of fell into this trap also, because these are guys coming with a lot of money and construction projects, not just in Peru and Brazil, but also in Colombia, in, um Guatemala Argentina you know they're all over the place and they're getting the government funds on all of you know wherever they have presence for that matter and they would have been supplying jobs to all of those people even if only temporary right but still so it's that's always the thing um and the problem is you know these countries are still in development a lot of them are still you know growing their economy they don't have a lot more Peru, for example, is just primarily mining, right? Um, agriculture, of course, um, primarily mining. So they, you know, they're not really a manufacturing company, right? Like maybe Mexico, right? But, you know, what was previously NAFTA, which is now the U, you know, they, they changed it, right? It, it's got a, it's got a different acronym now. But, um, you know, th th those were more manufacturing companies, maybe Brazil also. But Peru's kind of just, you know, we extract stuff, we send it to a place for them to turn it into something, right? Yeah, metals, right? Um, you know, it's very like limited. It's like, it's like Peru limited. doesn't really have like that, like that way out. Or the bottom like, of the food chain. Yeah, there's not like any kind of like oil or something that's, you know, they can, no. they can send out and but it's very rich. But even then, it's, it's like the process of it, right? Like those extracting those like raw materials, the return value you get on that, on those like supplies is so small compared to the return value you'd get on the countries that, you know, manufacture that stuff. Mm -hmm being able to export those goods to whatever, you know, it, it, whatever company, I guess, gave them the contract to make 
the whatever item that you know that factory is making yeah which is interesting too i look back and i think of where everything's made right and when when you look in your house everything usually says like made in indonesia made in china um some yeah there's a new like but you feel that wave though in Ma- mexico feel you, what like that the, the idea of that like like you know like say this is made in like mexico mm-hmm. but um the the american company that got that made in mexico got you know it cheaper than it made in america but even the raw materials that the mexicans needed to make that item got from an even smaller country which it got an even less return value for those raw materials so it's like that's why we're on like the bottom bottom in a sense because we are not a manufacturing company yeah isn't that weird how that how that like that money circulates and it means more when it's together than when it's separate i don't know Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean we we very much are on the bottom of the food chain, um, and we I, I believe we actually do have oil also, by the way, but it's nothing to actually, you know, cause like a boom. I guess you could say. I like Venezuelan oil. To. Yeah, but you know they they kind of screwed it up also. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> There's a, and then there's also the difference between privatization versus nationalization, right? Um, part of this Odebrecht scandal had to do with, right, Pemex, uh, Petrobras, right, in uh, Brazil, which was a, a national oil company, right? Um, you know, and the nationalized oil companies are always, you know, right. So you have the right that criticizes them for not allowing enough like competition and you know, um, efficient extraction, that, that's it, efficiency and stuff. Whereas, you know, the um, countries themselves, right, you know, they, they nationalize something, you know, to make the revenue more for the country, but they also don't have the know-how or the materials to actually do it efficiently themselves. So that's, that causes a huge problem also, right? It's like, so if, you know, Peru did something similar to that, you know, would we be able to really, um, you know, do things as efficiently, I guess is, is the question, right? Um, you know, in the book club recently, we were talking about the idea that Machu Picchu and all of like the tourist industry around that area is actually not really owned by Peru. It's actually owned by Chile, the airports owned by Chile um, and all different foreign companies. So what happens if we just make Peru in charge of all of that stuff would it you know would they do as well I don't know like that's you know that's the age-old question and stuff because you know you you might not get the same amount of funding for things you might not get the same amount of know-how and stuff so you know a controversy for sure um yeah I'm interested too like I know like I mean I bet I could probably look at this but I guess it's a better perspective from somebody who actually lives down there but um I'm curious to your perspective of um I know, like, I guess from prior information, you know, like, like Ecuador and, and um, Peru and and Chile, I think is underneath it or Bolivia. I, I forget one of the but I'm um, like, what? Who, who do you think controls? Because I know that they've been in conflict like since the 90s and maybe way before. I, I'm not sure. But like, who do you think is in like control? Like now, who, who's who's in power to a certain extent? Like now? Well, that's really hard to say with latin america right you know what usually you know you're thinking in i guess like 
developed world politics. We're, we're thinking United States, China, Russia, right? Like the, the ones with the big land mass. Um, down here, even if there are like conflicts or right trade deals or anything like that, people really leave each other alone for the most part. Um, you know, no, like this crisis that we're going into now, nobody's going to intervene. Like I, you know, just like we didn't intervene in Venezuela, you know, um, influence in terms of influence, my guess is just going to be probably Chile, um, just because they're the, you know, they've got the strongest economy, but they're also, they also had some trouble recently because of protests, right? Um, and they will be rewriting a new constitution. Uh, they actually just passed referendums, so now it's going to go through another process. So they're you know, they're trying to work on their own politics and stuff. But, you know, just my guess is Chile for that matter. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I guess that's why I asked because I'm like, wait, what? Peru doesn't like own Machu Picchu. Like, so then I'm like, all right, who who's top dog there? Like, you know, obviously, like I would I would think like Chile because not not to say obviously in a lot of areas, but in that specific area, you know, like when somebody's like a little stronger than you and it's like, all right, whatever, like you, you do. You, you keep but, it. I don't know, you get a vibe though, right? Yeah. Like, I don't but, know, I feel like I was in Mexico, I definitely get a vibe that like, you know, like, ain't nobody saying nothing, but obviously like America is in control. Like if I was in Canada, I'd be like, well, we're strong, but you know, America runs the shots here in North America. So I was just interested in that kind of like community within South America that's kind of like a Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, kind of like that little, you know, niche. But, but how did that happen? Like how, how was it that we, that the Peruvians don't own Machu Picchu? Yeah, that's interesting. Right. I'm actually not too sure on how that um, that whole thing developed. I mean, the thing is, it might have a little bit to do with what we were just, you know, talking about beforehand regarding that, you know, we're mostly, the most of our revenue is going to come from raw materials, small agricultural commodities and stuff like that. Um, the big funding for anything you know, even the extraction of those raw materials and small commodities are going to come from companies from outside, which have a lot of money, right? So, yeah, um, the airport, right, in Cusco is funded by, I don't remember what Chile or China, it's one of the two, right? Um, and, yeah, they, uh, they can actually run things like the train. Those are, again, construction projects, mm -hmm. which require a lot of funding um and you know they're not always the easiest thing for peruvians right who unfortunately right you can't really blame peru or you can't blame any of the andean countries for that matter right usually la comunidad andina they tend to be tight but that just might be because of their free trade agreement or just because that's all right so within la comunidad andina which consists of ecuador colombia bolivia and peru you can go, you don't need a passport to move between them, right? You could just go with your um, DNA, right? Which is the national identification card, you know, the equivalent of like a driver's license in the United States. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just move freely like between them and stuff. Um, so they tend to be a little bit tight in that respect. Um, but yeah, the thing is with a lot of the Andean countries, you've just got a history of, you know, you think about back to the Spanish conquest and everything, right? You know, the indigenous people were kind of, you know, 
enslaved and then after they were enslaved and the independence movements came, they were forgotten about. Um, and even the economies, right, during their time, right, the, the focus was always on, you know, just like one commodity, just like it is now, like a few commodities, if not one commodity, and infrastructure development really happened around the major cities, and around whatever would go into moving those commodities from wherever they were, from the mining sites or the farms to the cities and stuff, right? Um, and John Green actually has a really good, um, you know, I remember John Green from Crash Course, he did something on Sierra Leone. This is kind of like a similar situation where you've got railroads, but only like, you know, a couple of tracks that run from the mining sites all the way to the cities. And, you know, they, they focused on all of this at the expense of the rest of the country now. So now you've got huge cities that are really, really developed where everybody wants to live, but the rest of the rural countryside is essentially forgotten about. And then to expect those people in the rural countryside to do the kinds of things that people in the city can do or that a foreign company could do is kind of difficult, right? I mean, you know, to do those projects like in Machu Picchu, like in another airport, like in the train, like run those kinds of services and appeal to the market and stuff. I mean, uh, if you're really into ecotourism, right, or just, you know, kind of like seeing things for what they naturally are and stuff, or like, you know, the traditional people, and you don't need to be, you know, around touristy things, then I guess it's kind of cool, right? You know, ecotourism would be great. But, um, you know, it's, Cusco has also gotten really, you know, tourist friendly. And unfortunately, some parts of the Sierra, um, you know, and other parts of Peru for that matter might not necessarily be safe. Cusco actually has that environment where, you know, you know it's very welcoming to tourists. Mm. I have a question just to bring into perspective, um, uh, like all this like information. Um, so when you, so I guess my question is like, at what point did like, I guess Peruvian culture really start to take a front seat in your life or, and then maybe like, did that, was that like on the backseat of you moving down there or did you intend to learn about Peru and that's why you moved down there? I'm curious about that. Oh, okay. So yeah. Um, I feel like learning about things is not, you know, and unfortunate that I say this, but it's certainly the truth is, and I think this happens with a lot of adoptees for that matter, is that I never thought I would be here. I never thought I would be, as interested in things as I am now, or, you know, a part of it has, doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not just because I had an ex-girlfriend who was really into politics or that my sister talks about with me all the time. I was always very interested in politics in general, right? You know, I, when I was in college, I was, you know, on a pre-law track, I wanted to go to law school um, and I had major philosophy. So, you know, just kind of like knowing theories and how, I guess, governments work was always something of my interest. And then kind of getting down here, learning about the culture, learning about the political systems, and learning about the history, it kind of opened my eyes to just how the world works, for that matter. And it was a lot, I don't know, it was a lot richer, I felt. Because in the United States, right, you just really have this like, you know, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, you know, um, but at the end of the day, 
things are just kind of like calm. I mean, even, you know, I don't want to, you know, sound insensitive or anything, but even with some of those, you know, some of the protests that are occurring now in the United States for a variety of different reasons, of course, from both sides of the political aisle, I would still say the United States is never going to be in a situation like you'll see some of the Latin American countries in for that matter, right? Where things I mean, like get the, really the like yeah, like sorry, you're probably just about to say it, like the amount of like violence, the amount of like because you know, police I feel like in Peru or, you know, South American countries, they're not as maybe the word would be well, they are. They're more tough, right? Because I feel like there's not as many eyes on them as far as, like, United States. Maybe maybe the accountability here is higher? Well, yeah, I think because we're, pro- we're a top dog, like, in the sense of just being the power. And with that, you know, comes responsibility. Yeah. Being able to set the standard. So when, when we have a problem, everyone kind of low-key turns to us because... Because we're the, but they don't the, get it. What I'm thinking though is like the Peruvians, like the like the cops, like you'll see more of kind of corruption. I feel like down there, and they don't get in trouble. It just uh, is more natural. Y- yeah, I guess. Well, I you may, may, maybe you know. Because I, I guess like looking, we went, we were watching a documentary, I think, on Brazil, yeah. and just think seeing the crime there, and I think it was like the rate of the amount of like police killings was up like eighty percent. American government system is will always be strong enough to always. You'll be able, I think, hopefully, to, to, to have these kind of protests for it to get probably like, you know, maybe a little bit more violent than normal. But uh, but it always kind of being able to um, heal itself in a way. Things will get changed. Progress will be made. And maybe in like, for instance, Brazil, everything's just so lawless that, you know, no, there's no incentive for like the government per se to maybe make those kind of changes or can even make those kind of changes because of like the corruption within the government itself. I don't know. Sure. I mean, you've got the problem of corruption, right, which is rampant. Um, and you've got the president of Brazil now, the equivalent of Donald Trump. He's actually said a lot worse things than Trump, which I, I will not mention, but just terrible things about women, about, you know, the LGBT community is uh, crazy. But um, he, the police killings in Brazil are probably going to go up, right, because he supports that if he was he was elected on a platform of bringing down crime rate because the crime rate was previously right like six times that of the the homicide rate was previously about six times that of the united states so um and people you know when you're going outside all the time and you're you're feeling unsafe and you're afraid that you're going to get robbed all the time right it really does something to the general populace and that's why they elected a right-wing leader right it's bolsonaro right now in brazil so um but in doing that you also realize you're gonna you know you're sacrificing you're probably gonna sacrifice a lot of social services you know he's going after the pension system now so people are gonna have to retire later Mm. and also the amazon you know i mean it, it always has a fire season but most especially it's um right most recently it's been kind of disastrous and you know because he's been putting more funding into the military than into firefighting, you know, the Amazon and its protection rights, it's, that's going to suffer also. So, you know, th- there is a reason why the general populace wanted a leader like that. And now, right, and partially because of Odebrecht, right? The Odebrecht scandal that we were talking about, you, you know, and the failure of the previous, if you can call it the failure, but just, you know, the unfortunate um, 
circumstances of the previous left-wing party that was kind of fell into this whole scandal and everything. So people wanted to change, just like in America, right? People wanted a change in 2016, and, you know, uh, we got that guy <laughs> for the last four years. But now, you know, things are changing, hopefully, for the better. Um, and people wake up. You know, people are conscious. That's the good thing about Latin America is people are conscious of things. Do you think this is like... going to, like, change things, though, in Peru? Do you think the protesting and everything is going to create a difference? Well, you know, there's also something else to take in mind about this protest right now and all of the things that are going up in smoke right now is that this new provisional, this is only a provisional government, mm-hmm. right? They have to honor elections next April. So they're, okay, we're going to boot the president, that's fine, but the we have to respect the timeline of elections and stuff. So um, I it's hard to say whether or not we're going to be able to get the, the past guy back. I fear that's probably not going to happen. Mm. That's probably my opinion. That's what a lot of people um, are protesting right now is because they want the president to come back. But didn't you say that he doesn't want to come back? Or that he doesn't really want to be the president, kind of? He doesn't want to run for re-election. But he wanted to finish out his term. When does the term end? April of next year. Oh, April. So they just... Wait, so why did they kick him out? The Congress. The Congress... Okay, so he was charged with um, accepting bribes. I don't remember from where, but just accepting bribes during his time as a governor of um, right? um, which is a southern um, state in uh, Peru, which was, you know, kind of earlier in his political career. So this was even before he was vice president, because remember, he was replacing the president before him, right? So this was even before he was vice president, um, probably right before that. So he's getting charged with that. Now, commentators say that this is something that they could have waited on right you know this is not like an urgent issue especially considering the fact that we're in you know corona crisis times you know he's overseeing the corruption task force and you know there's a hundred other problems that he's been overseeing for the past two years that he's been in office and this is just you know why now like it's just dumb that they would do this when he's already in charge of all these other projects and um yeah no he didn't have political ambitions um he was only vice president never wanted to be president doesn't want to run for re-election now and here's something else he is going to stay here he's saying you want to charge me with corruption bring it uh alberto fujimori who was our president when we were you know all getting adopted he left you know he, he he knew that he was going to be you know, um, in, I, I guess he was still an officer. He would have been impeached, right? And then sent to prison, which he eventually was, but he left. Mm-hmm. Alejandro Toledo left. Alan Garcia killed himself, right? Last year, a year before. Are those all presidents time. after him? After Fujimura? So Garcia was right before. Uh-huh. And then he got elected again in like 2000, oh. right? In like the 2000s. So that's a whole nother thing, right? That people 
you know, you, and that, that's also another thing. So a lot of people are criticizing the critics or criticizing the protesters in part because they're like, well, you're the ones who voted for the Congress that we have. Mm. So there's, they have a point. They do, right? Um, and I think legally they could do what they did. And especially considering that the president, um, was it a year or two ago, well, he's been trying different times, but, you know, obviously Congress has to act on it for him to do so legally to actually, um, you know, assume the role of Congress and stuff, kind of like a, kind of becoming like a dictator, right? Because he would be, you know, removing the power of one branch of government. So he has been trying to do that, but that's because they're just, you know, they just twiddle their thumbs all the time, right? Um, they don't do a whole lot. But Congress did do this. And yes, people, some people have been criticizing the protesters because they are like, yeah, you, you voted them in, you backed them, right? You know, you're, that's the part, part of the reason that we have them is because, you know, of us. But at the same time, it's really hard, you know, um, and I'm not too, you know, I don't know too much about the Peruvian electoral process, right? You know, how you put a candidate on the ballot exactly. I don't, I don't think there are primaries. I think it's very independent. You know, you actually just have, because you don't just have Democrat Republican. You've got a lot of people representing a lot of different interests. Not even, you know, liberal conservative is not the way to look at it. Yeah, there are some groups that lean, ideologically lean left, and then there are some groups that ideologically lean to the right, but you've got all different, you know, you've got religions involved also, right? Evangelicals. Um, and all different, like, private interest groups, maybe more um, pro-foreign investment, you know, less foreign investment, that kind of stuff. So it's really, you know, you think of a multi-party system. Peru certainly participates in a multi-party system, um, for sure. So. They're, in the, they're independent. There aren't necessarily parties, right, to an extent, or no? So there are political parties, okay. but it's really hard to pinpoint on their ideology. I see. Right. You know, um, you'll have like a center right, a center left party, an extremist left, an extremist right party, maybe a more just independent party. Um, yeah, a popular force, right? Like I was saying, has lost a lot of their power. They were like the right wing, riding on the Fujimori legacy, right? You know, because Fujimori did do a lot of things right um when he was in office people still praise him for getting rid of the terrorism he had the support of the united states and um right i guess like the, the free world and everything because we were in like you know the end of the cold war but still we were still in the cold war and stuff so uh and he changed our currency right the currency we have is all from that time right um yeah, i remember because my parents went and they had inties, which was the previous mm. money. And I then know that existed. Inties. Yeah. Inties, right? Which is sol, right? Yeah. Which is the currency now is called El Nuevo Sol. Yeah. Because oh. yeah, you had souls when Peru first became independent and they changed it. And then you had inties. And my parents had a little bit of those. Mm. And then they had souls i guess they were just recently getting them into circulation at that time mm. and That's yeah um so fujimori did quite a bit right? because 
you're trying to recover from, right? Uh, inflation, hyperinflation, kind of like what happened to Venezuela, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of inflation, hyperinflation, and that's that's what happened. So he did some good. Um, I'd say he did some good. I'd also say he did a lot of bad, right? Um, corruption being one of them. And but you know that this political party that lasted until now, right? Literally, like within the last couple of years, lasted until the last couple of years rode the coattails of his legacy and had influence in a lot of things mm -hmm. and just recently people are kind of wising up to that and like i said you know um i don't blame the people i mean i blame the spanish conquest in part because that's the reason why peru can't you know do nice things for themselves that's why you know the foreign companies are the ones that are here with the funds and the know-how to get things done that's why you know the people don't know how to elect good officials right i don't blame I, it's hard you know yeah are the people to blame yes and no right it's just history time of just not being able to develop education for example right um and that's i guess you know the, the big thing peru is going to have to oversee um you know in the decades to come so you know in the hope that you know we will be able to become more independent and more developed right in the long run yeah i guess that kind of just goes back to like traditions too you know just because at the end of the day like like i remember you talking to i think milagros and we were talking about what would we do in the book club like what would we do if we could go down there and we could be anything you know what kind of job would we take or make and you know, a lot of us were kind of talking about like food vendors, right? Because that's kind of like a, a typical or traditional thing that you would do, you know, maybe like a food cart or something. Um, but just going back to maybe not wanting to change with the times and specifically like down there, you know, change not necessarily being a frequent thing, you know, and having it be a little bit harder to change because I know they, they're very traditional. And I guess I can only speak for from like my birth parents. I remember going there the first time, them not having like a refrigerator or a microwave. And then going back recently and they had a like a wash machine and a refrigerator and a microwave. Uh, but there's two parts of the house. The front of the house, it, which is my mom and dad's, it's still like wood and dirt. And then the back of the house, which is my, my uh, sisters and her husband and their kids, it's very like tiled and painted. And so like a lot more modern. And it's just so funny. There's that giant divide just physically in the house. And so just kind of going back to the Peruvians and changing and maybe not even wanting to change just because of um, the Spanish coming in and creating such a change and like taking over. Yeah, and I think we read in like read the Hilaria Superwoman book, like the first book. Um, and, you know, to those who have never read it before, right? The, um, it, she mentions that, you know, we never used to drink alcohol. It's the Spanish who gave us the alcohol and you know made us the way that we are um and introduced a lot of customs men never used to cut their hair but the spanish introduced short hair and stuff like that right um there's a lot that they introduced us to but didn't know didn't teach us why or how to cultivate you know literally and symbolically right mm -hmm. um our own you know a, a, a better a better way of life and yeah, it's always interesting speaking about the hair. I was just kind of like 
like throughout my whole life, even like us, like high school, I always wondered, like, like it always bothered me why like Hispanic dudes, they always had that clean, so clean cut. And it just had a little, little spiky hair, little spiky hair and everything like was like clean. It was a nice it. fade in the back. And I'm just like, <laughs> I just remember all the time being like, I have long hair. I have X, Y, and Z hair because I don't want to be like those t- typical guys. And I guess now that you say that, it just kind of like relates where it's like, it's not, maybe, maybe it's not their, their fault. Maybe, you know, that in that retrospect, you know, because their, their fathers and, and came from whatever, Mexico, Peru, Ecuador. And, and that's kind of like maybe the, the lifestyle that they adapted, but they don't know why, why it is that maybe they do these little small things like get a haircut like that. Maybe that's why they don't necessarily get, have like long hair to a certain extent. And I don't know. <laughs> just connecting yeah. weird dots in my head no absolutely i mean the, the incas always used to have long hair right um not too sure about the mayans or the aztecs but a lot of indigenous right um tribes or empires for that matter used to have long hair and you know um i think bolivia and ecuador are a little bit better at this whereas peru still retains you know a little bit more of, I guess, restrictive views on indigenism, right? It's, uh, right, and, 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 you know, we read about this in the book club and stuff, right? You know, Peru tends to be a little bit more conservative um, with appearance, tends to be a little bit more right-wing, um, and tends to be a little bit more religious, most like, you know, Catholic religious, whereas I think Ecuador or Bolivia, right, they're a little more liberal but they're also at the same time also a little more liberal in the appearance you know you look you know they're, they're going to be more guys with long hair for example so whereas in peru like from grade school you know if you're a guy gotta shave your head for school and mm. stuff right so yeah it's a uh, kind of yeah kind of very different yeah so now that we're kind of on traditions i know we only have like maybe uh like 20 minutes left what's something that you would that you wouldn't carry on from like traditions in the united states and what's one thing in um like peru that you wouldn't like carry on i guess an example would be this kind of weird traditions right so a weird tradition would be how how they cut open a guinea pig right and then whatever's wrong with the guinea pig they say that that's wrong with you what's something that you wouldn't carry on i wouldn't carry that on anymore for example right now so that's always going to be a debate um how much do you want to respect religion right for example or respect indigenous culture and stuff versus what's actually better for people and I, you know the debate goes on in the united states when we're talking about certain religions and certain policies and how to handle religions when they get dangerous not only right to other people but also to themselves and down here you know you also have like the urban versus rural countryside indigenous divide mm-hmm. yeah so um i wouldn't continue that and i'll tell you why because it hurts the people you know in the long run you know it's do i think it's a symbol of imperialism to necessarily say that we shouldn't that the, they shouldn't do that anymore if they want to do that because it makes them feel better i'm fine with it but you should also go to the doctor yeah. you know because science not and i'm a you know huge i guess right um promoter proponent um of science and 
know, being an atheist myself, right? I, I think science is the only way that can lead us to truth and the science and philosophy for that matter, right? To truth and to a better world. And if you cling to any of those old traditions at the expense of the well-being of other people, I think that's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I I, I agree 100%. I, it's interesting too, like I, I just asked myself that question um science compared to like religion in that retrospect maybe not even like religious uh being a part of a religious sect like whether judaism christianity or it's weird right because it's like a lot of the things i I do want to uh believe in in terms of when it comes to science when it comes to you know medicine the the cutting edge of other things and um but it's weird too because it's like at, at the same time there there are these things that that like you can't explain and and they just are and maybe maybe science hasn't caught up with those things yet maybe there's this unknown formula that that we just tap into randomly that can have things go our way i don't know but it's just interesting too because it's like um i want to 100 percent believe in in science but there's a certain element of of that unknown variable that kind of like has me it's just isn't like believe in 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 something that i can't understand and and if you want to call it like a higher power you want to call it god that's just interesting you know because i I can only relate it to like parts of my life you know parts of my life that were very like like um life and death you know parts of my life that um uh i was very emotionally like you know traumatized and i was in very dark places in my my mind um only to you know subconsciously kind of get a get a feeling of of a way out and, and that might have only happened because I was having a talk or one-on-one like kind of um, self-reflection with maybe a higher being, maybe something. But for whatever reason, it, it did get me out of that moment. And, and that's just interesting. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that relates. Maybe it doesn't relate. But when, when you're talking about that, I, I couldn't help but like think about that other aspect of, um, of that unknown variable. Um, that's, re- yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, well, like I said, I think a religion certainly has therapeutic purposes, um, and if you feel like it's something that's good for you to believe in, right, and I can certainly understand it, and something I can certainly appreciate, um, I think that's entirely fine. I think my big problem before anything is always going to be if it's going to negatively affect other people, but if it mm-hmm. doesn't do that, then, and it helps you be a better person to other people, I think that's entirely okay. Just like, you know, when we're talking about that, um, you know, understanding people and their illogicalness here in Peru, right? You know, where we're talking about my family and everything and you know, understanding people. I think that's one thing, right? I was kind of subtly referring to was the religiousness of people down here and stuff, you know, um, because it's something very, very different. It's not even, you know, and I was raised Catholic, right? And you know, I was also devout for a period of time. And um, you know, I I don't have as negative of a view as perhaps somebody that you know didn't get raised with you know any kind of religion in their life. Um, but it's certainly carried out, executed, right, in a very different way than what um, I'm used to as a Catholic from the United States of America, right? Um, all right, my ex-girlfriend was Catholic, very Catholic, and I remember going attending some church services, and I remember, um, you know, you can't go accept communion unless you've gone to confession, right? Mm. And so if you, if you haven't gone to confession, don't 
don't even get up, don't even get in line. Whereas if you're in the United States and you've already gone to communion and they look down on you for not getting up and going and getting communion and stuff, right? So mm-hmm. it's uh, they're very, very strict, you know, following each thing point for point and stuff. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of how it is. But they'll also look at other things, right? Um, right, other things dealing with people's private lives that um you know with certain opinions that i don't think i share or can agree with for that matter and that's uh you know again the never-ending battle of living here with people with different views and a different kind of like belief and judgment system for that matter so curious you've never had like um uh like uh something that you know in your life that happened and i don't know for whatever reason you were really thinking that it wasn't going to happen or it could be anything, um, but it did happen. Like, do you just consider that as just like luck or, or was that unknown variable that it was just my day and that just happened? Um, I guess I would be a little bit more on the side of right coincidence or luck um, or something like that. I mean, um, yeah, so there are certain things, right? Like I was mentioning before with my sister and meeting her, like, you know, my parents had just died and then I met a sister and her, you know, guardian had just died. So there's a sense in which, yeah, it's, it's good luck, though. It's a good coincidence, you know, and it's brought us closer together. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's unfortunate. Like, I, I don't believe in certain things. Like, karma, I don't necessarily believe in, right? Just, you know, don't do it again or something like that, right? Um, so there's a little bit of, uh, yeah, but that's, that's just my point of view, though. Yeah, I think growing up, I always uh, thought of religion as... It was a way for people to cope. It was some higher being that people kind of use as an excuse. And I would bring that up a lot to my mom and my grandma because they were very religious. And I just thought when something goes bad, that's where they, they like ask for things, you know. Like, like But that's I what thought. I hate about religion in that retrospect, especially yeah. with the Christianity version. Like yeah. I myself, I'm Jewish. I don't relate to that, but I do see it all the time. It's definitely in movies projected of just like you do something bad. You go to the priest and you pray for your beg for your forgiveness to get into heaven. You do Hail Marys. You go to the confession, all that stuff. I never really agreed with that. And like I don't, fixed. I don't agree with the I don't agree with Judaism. I don't agree with Christianity. I don't agree with Islam. But um, but I guess it's just that that I agree with spirituality, like in that sense where it's like. I know that religion, sorry, I know that um, science is is the thing that we can't look away from, right? Like there, science can help us in so many different facets of our life, whether it be co- like culturally as a community or any anything. But it's just like, I don't know, it's like that, that unknown variable that, you know, there are coincidences to a certain extent too that I think that are, I don't know, out of our, out of our understanding of what of the reasoning behind why it happened that way. And as much as I'd like to think that it's like a, a sequence of random events that just, it just was your day and that's just roll of the dice and that's just how it is. I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's not proven in that retrospect. So my mind always kind of keeps that, that, that door not shut all the way because I'm just like, I don't know. Like I'll be a skeptic until proven otherwise in that sense. So but yeah, like like my personal like I, I when I define like that spirituality aspect, I I take religion of what people conceptualize and and spirituality of like I guess the root of this every religion, which is that that God that that un 
known being, you know, whether it's like the Native Americans believing in, in the spirits, whether it's like the Incans believing in their spirits, whether it's like the Africans, the, the Asians, whether then it, it goes even further in time or back in time with the, the Judaism Islamic, like it all, I feel like forms something. And I don't know what that is because at the end of the day, you go back further enough in time, those words, those, those stories, they just get convoluted. And, and I just, I, if anything, I just want to know like, the truth, where, where that all stemmed from, you know, but I don't know, whatever. <laughs> this is my thoughts. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, you know, it makes you wonder if everything's just kind of the same thing, but just told differently, yeah. I guess, a little bit, right? Um, so one of the things that I found interesting, right, um, is that, you know, we were talking about my dad, you know, before and everything. He, he was a Freemason and stuff. So um, Wait, yeah, my mom was again? the Catholic one. What's a, what's a Freemason again? Oh, wow. Wait. A Freemason? Yeah. Um, okay. It's... All right, so there's like a, a lot of the things there. Um, let's see, how, how would I explain this? Well, the only thing I know my dad was a Freemason because his grandfather was a Freemason, and they did a lot of charity work, but it seems like it's more like a club mm. for people. It seems like it's something people get into to get like better connections into certain organizations, kind of like a type of limited nepotism i guess you could say right because there are a lot of people in power in that were freemasons mm -hmm. so in the united states a lot of the founding fathers were freemasons by george washington um yeah, wasn't Franklin. it like a cult yeah. back when you go further enough like in a certain extent like people who like a secretive kind of organization way back when obviously like it, it obviously like no i mean maybe it, not i don't know it's uh not a secret organization it's an organization or society rather with secrets mm. and it's just it's a fraternity mm. that's all it is right? yeah because i see it on all I'm these like crime shows on like they were a freemason and then nobody really knows what it is and then they make it into like a <laughs> see cult the, see the national treasure <laughs> yeah. yeah right like uh you know god attention and national treasure maybe like the da vinci code those oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. different things um but you yeah, know i think it was just a fraternity to be honest okay. but um huh? yeah and uh, yeah to help just kind of like build business connections really that's kind of what it seemed like to me because thing was early america right a lot of guys are like helping other freemasons get into positions of power stuff like that kind of happened so you even had political parties right that were against specifically just against freemasonry right mm -hmm. um but why do i bring this up because the freemasons actually Right. Um, so they've become a lot more liberal. Oh, that's another thing. They used to only accept rich people, hmm. but they've gotten a lot more liberal in the recent years um, in the sense that they're being more welcoming to other religions because it used to be you had to be, you know, a wasp, essentially, to become a Freemason. Now you can be Jewish, you can be Catholic, you can be Muslim. Um, so you could really be anything for that matter. But the one thing they believe in is a grand architect of the universe and stuff. So you have to believe in a grand architect of the universe. So if you belong to anything, you know, as Sam was mentioning, all the different religions um, you know, of all different you know, walks of life could be, you know, um, I don't think I would be a candidate because I'm just flat out atheist. But as long as you believe in something, you would certainly get in. And I think that's, you know, something that was you know was trying to establish some sort of unity but i don't know um but 
I also bring this up because I also think, you know, um, that's part of the reason how I, and, you know, my father being just kind of skeptical on anything, right, um, was kind of the way that I kind of ended up the way that I did. Um, and, you know, I, you know, it's made me open to diff different belief systems, especially down here. Um, and I, I think it's certainly helped out with, uh, you know, me being able to, um, you know, survive as long as I did right um, down here. So certainly appreciative of that. But I would also like to, I guess, mention a few of the things, right, with the time that I have that I had sent you um, in the WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. So um, there are a few things, right? I think in a previous episode, you had both talked about um, the idea of adoptive guilt. Mm -hmm. So I would just kind of like to give my two cents in on that. Mm -hmm. Adoptee guilt, I think, is something that can be resolved if you take a more active approach in your adoption and to alleviate some of those issues that surround your adoption. You know, um, what does that mean? Um, and, you know, like you were asking me before, you know, if you could go back to Peru and you know, do something down here, what would it be exactly? And I think being able to use your opportunities for the better of your Peruvian community, for that matter, I think might be a way to alleviate that guilt. Because the guilt is always like, why me? Why am I in such a better situation? Why does my family suffer? Why do other people suffer? Why do, you know, just a, a few selected adoptees? But wouldn't if you go back and you do the good things mm -hmm. that you know wouldn't that alleviate the bill i don't know right so that's just my point of view um and um i always thought adoption is more complicated than just going from a bad place to a good place right um there are so many you know things that go into like that statement and unfortunately and i don't know how a lot of you feel about like um the idea of historical revisionism for that matter you know how yeah. now i'm sorry oh no i was gonna ask like what what that means historical revisionism it's like so the the thing is in a lot of okay so conservatives right like to attack the education system the public education system because they think that they're too interested in undoing the legacy of like for example the founding fathers mm. and stuff right or yeah. um right colonialism for that matter right um traditionally and i think most of us right um have grown up you know it's like a revolutionary war happened you know civil war happened whatever right you know, and these guys did good they established our republic you know and everyone's happy forever and stuff but you leave out the indigenous community native americans um a lot of those things you know a lot of those parts of American history were left out. So now the movement by a lot of, you know, um, universities, the public school system is to undo that narrative that the white man was the, you know, more advanced, more developed, like the more moral person versus the savage mm -hmm. Native Americans. The problem, yeah. 
Oh, no, that's interesting, though, that perspective, right? Because, like, I don't know, like, from my personal, like, uh, take on that, too. At the end of the day, the, the Europeans, they, they conquered, right? Oh. That's what they did, regardless of the knowledge that each other culture had within themselves. But it's interesting, too, right? And, like, how, how, how does one teach that? How does, like, one teach the facts? Like, the facts is, like, something like, it's an unfortunate that the Europeans created steel and from steel like or like they they took gunpowder from like the chinese and they created like a gun and then that was able to you know like like obviously they were able to take control of other regions but at the same time like learning about that but also learning about like the cultural aspects of each culture that was taken over and having that be a part of like the curriculum as well right like the bigger picture exactly more balanced in that retrospect yeah and i think I, I'm all for it. Obviously, I'm, I'm. I really think it's a good idea. Seeing history from both sides. Yeah. But what does it do to our adoption story? Because our adoption story also kind of depends a little bit on, you know, right? Our biological family disorderly, and our white fam, mostly white family, right? Um, could, I mean, it could be anything, but you know, our American family being you know, kind of like the savior to us mm. and stuff. So a lot of people, right, undoing that hierarchy kind of, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it'd be interesting to see how a lot of adoptees kind of like see that, you know, that whole undoing the hierarchy and stuff. Of like um, the narrative of how Americans came and like saved you? it's no longer saved you it's Americans. because yeah then there's a lot of people who think that you know my life not might not necessarily be better in the united states or right um or they view their parents in a very different light than you know or maybe you start to see your biological family as better right i don't know then you're you went from a it's not going from a bad place to a good place, which is the traditional adoptee narrative and stuff, right? It's but that's now interesting too, right? Puts it into question. It's like I'm trying to think of like everything, right? Like that comes with that, and that it's I don't know. I feel like majority of the things that like people get adopted for is is for because you know maybe their family can't take care of them potentially. And maybe there's obviously exceptions to the the average of why people get adopted. Uh, and it's interesting though, like in this world, obviously you can't like think about shoulda, woulda, couldas of different people, like country, but America is like number one in that sense, like global economic, like powerhouse America. And so it's interesting because it's, that's, that's like, I guess why Americans or, or Europeans in the English, the, the French go to uh, countries who aren't that economically viable, um, and take potentially like a child to a potentially better place but you know it's like dang it's like I, the only sorry the one thing i can relate to it is just kind of you know my my mom you know never was a mom but she did the best she could with me and and r regardless if i was adopted or not i can always say well you know you should have maybe you could you should have been better you should have done this better but she's just like yo I did the best with what I what I had at the time. I don't know if that like how that relates to anything, but I, I did, that's just kind of like 
my uh, like perspective on it to a certain extent you know like i don't know like like americans or people who are like you know um wealthy who have a better situation better environment they're just doing the best i'd hope you know obviously when you come to the people who get like a like the emotional abuse that adoptees face or physical abuse that adoptees face i i'd like to think that the, that that was an intention that wasn't the intention of adopting a child obviously there are variables to the average of what i'm trying to say but that's it's just interesting like you know it's like as much as i would like to bring back to my point as much as i would like to say like that it that it is safe it, it i don't know kind of kind of is safe right so a few things right yeah I've got a few minutes right um yeah i i agree with you on my father's roles how you see your mom i also agree that my father he wasn't the best but he did the best with what he had right he didn't have maybe he didn't have like that emotional upbringing and you know he wasn't as much of a go-getter as i think my mom would have been especially when it came to school so it's you know um i mean i still appreciate what he did and there's nothing that's going to change my opinion on that right i still value his input in my life right so there's that then you know regarding you know um like the history and you know places in society and stuff like that there's a sense in which um you know, we're all kind of a product of capitalism but we're all kind of a product of you know even me living here i'm you know my formation my education my background my way of thinking and my citizenship status i'm still an american still have my name that's i'm still an adoptee i just happen to be living in peru right that's never going to change either and that's very much a consequence of everything america did good bad or ugly you know um and i think that also is what pits us against latinos in many ways for especially first generation or just in any latino immigrants is that we're just you know we're not like that you know um we had all the benefits of you know the um you know growing up in america and being in a certain family and not having to you know um work or fight every day for what we have um and i think that that's always going to separate us from that community so really the best we can ever hope for is just like you know maybe just like empathy I know a lot of adoptees tend to be, you know, associated with the Democratic Party, for example, including myself, right? Um, and then also, yeah, uh, you're trying to find a sense of solidarity with other Latinos, but it turns into really just kind of like a race thing, because at the end of the day, we are very, very different um, for that reason. And, you know, I, you know I, I might be a Democrat, but I'm not extreme left either mostly because i do know that capitalism has benefited me you know um and uh was it my american upbringing has benefited me even down here and stuff so i can't say that i you know um i can't say things have really been difficult the worst thing that's happened to me is my parents dying and honestly that's it you know um everything else i've been able to kind of really take care of myself and um me being with my family has only made my life richer yeah it's it's interesting the there was a question i saw the other day on a on an adoptee page 
Um, and it was, uh, what is, what do you think the life expectancy of an adoptee is? And I guess Jesus I just, Christ. I guess I just didn't think that there was like a, what's our shelf life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind mm-hmm. of like, I didn't know that there was, um, you know, like what's for me, I think what's a life expectancy if, if I have cancer, you know, that those are the big questions that like. Uh, when I found out I had cancer, I didn't really know what it was. And so that's kind of one of the number one things I went to is like, what, what's this well, that, mean? That, that, that's actually like a realistic fact, right? About that life expectancy of adoptees, because with a lot of adoptees, we don't know our background in terms of the medical history that we have. Like we were uh. talking with Phil early, like earlier about like certain foods that our culture hasn't, you know, generations have never experienced like a hamburger. I don't I'm like processed foods to a certain extent. But can you do that as a whole though? Cause like adoptees, there's like it, like in country adoptees that's and like true. international that's adoptees also true. and there's Peruvian adoptees. And so I don't know if you can necessarily just say like, like that, that they're their own race. Uh, that's a good question. I guess you'd have to section them off by as best you as best as according i think american adoption would be in the, they're a little bit different but a lot yeah. different I feel a lot, like. yeah a um, lot different yeah. i just feel like i don't know this might be like kind of like i don't mean to be rude but um it's just kind of like i feel like in country adoption is a lot more easier right it's a little bit easier to go adopt a kid and i don't want to say it's like adopting a puppy or anything like like it's that easy but i feel like it's in a, country yes like in sure like united states like adopting from the united states from for verse like, 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 like international, like the processes, yeah. or do you think it's it's not? I just know that, right, with my adoption, and I think with a lot of our adoptions, it was easier to do it internationally. I don't know really? why. Maybe Malagros can... Well, that right? makes sense, though, right? Because a more, obviously, a more, like, stable country with a lot more laws, a lot more history in that um, accountability in terms of just being in control of certain things, you'd have to assume that, yeah, like, hmm. a, adopting a kid from the, the country is a lot more complicated. You have to go through a lot more barriers, per se, because... Maybe it's just because I see so many, um, like, uh, what are those centers, like, of with people who are in, um, in the United States and that there's just more, um, not centers. What is it called? Uh... No, we're not oh my god i was gonna say halfway homes yeah no. orphanages? yes yes orphanages. and and just like i guess when i was um when i was adopted i remember going to or not when i was adopted but i remember seeing the agencies you know and you can it's so weird to me to think about this like you could go to an agency like open house and there's an adoptee kind of like a puppy like a puppy adopt house open house and you go and you can like kind of pick one um, and maybe my bias is just on like a lot of the movies and shows I've watched. So to be honest, I haven't looked into like how easy or how hard it is. And I guess what I have looked into is just I had to do like a 20 page report one time on like adopting internationally and just the process of that. So I guess that's the only that's where I'm I, sure my hairs come from. Right. I'm sure no matter what you do, it's probably a process in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but I also think what Sam is saying I that's the kind of the impression like you know I'm I didn't do as much research as you for Malagros oh, yeah. or right um but I get the sense that yeah right when you're adopt because what you do is you adopt from here first and then it's like getting married right you get married in Peru first and then you get married in the United States second down here you adopt a child first and generally Peru is just like you're from America you've got a stable job 
there you go. That's it. That's uh, all you, you need to do. Yeah. And then you go into the United States and then they validate it and stuff. Whereas the United States in a domestic adoption will just have oversight, a lot more oversight and see things. It could even go to your house if you had like a bad day. I don't know. Like yeah. Things like that, you know? And just, just those facts are there, right? Like the health facts of these people for, for whatever. So obviously oh, yeah. there's always, you know, things that are not the average, but you know, like you have the mother's um, medical history or the father's medical history. Those things are vetted, I think a little bit more. So like, for instance, what we were talking about with med medical things like, you know, food or, or, or environment, I think that, that those those are more known variables and when you're coming to international those are more like unknown variables yes the when you come into a country like i said i don't know that specifics mm -hmm. but i'd assume like you said you come into the country they'll look at you and they'll make sure everything's okay but those like those long process things like you know for instance like you know like cancer like you, you don't really you can't see it until it just starts but like i'm sure that if you knew those the family history you knew that there was a lineage like for instance ovarian cancer in my family you know, you, you'd be able to like, you know, know, know of that. Some people don't know of, that they have cancer in their family and they just, you know, from China, from Peru, and then they just have to get thrown in there only to un like only to get even deeper, right. To have like, eat, like they love Twinkies and only for that Twinkie to just somehow activate and then just spark something. And then like, you're not well, I don't know, but yeah, just more unknowns. I yeah. So in that retrospect, I think it's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a process for sure. It's since been amended, and I've talked to them down here, right, with the Ministerio de la Mujer, right, which is the, the woman, Ministry of the Woman, right? Um, but yeah, it's, that's where you go through the adoption process. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, they're allegedly supposed to do investigations for you if you want to find your biological family, but they're just like, oh, you know, you're, you were adopted too soon, so we can't, we can't do that and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um Wow. Yeah. Because um, now it, you have to go changed. through like a process, isn't it? Like it's you can't just get adopted at a certain a young age. Yeah, right. That's what Milagros was saying. Um, yeah, it's because I, I guess just in general they favor a courts favor unity, right? Um, with biological family before going through other routes and stuff, right? Um, so yeah, that certainly makes sense. So they want to make sure that there's no other avenue. That could take years. Right. So, well, absolutely. Um, yeah. Did you have, have any other questions? Um, to answer a couple. Or, you know, or, um, uh, I had a good time today. It's uh, thanks for having me on on the show. Yeah. yeah no, appreciate appreciate uh, you being here with us. It's kind of cool to kind of go all all around. You know, like I said, sometimes it's about adoption, sometimes it's not. Um, but I just think it's so unique, you know, you being down there and having that perspective because it's it's something I always wanted to do is to live with my birth family only until I did take the leap down there to live with them for two months. And honestly, the first week I I was looking at flights back home <laughs> to the United States because I was like, this is too much. For one, I did it the wrong way. You know, I didn't learn Spanish before I went down there. So it's just me with a bunch of like Spanish and Quechua people um, speaking people, which are my family and it's it for me it was a little bit it was weird because they were so connected to me they were just like oh my god like crying and like hugging and I'm just kind of like hey guys like uh you know where do I put my stuff and it was um you know they made it as like comfortable uh as they can and looking back at it they did a, they did a lot of things you know they gave me my own room it was a brand new bed I had a mirror I had like this nice kind of stand by the window 
to put like clothes and things and like a a table and um but uh, i kind of feel like uh selfish or a little bit by by that not being enough you know by by needing to have like my things in the united states you know those things that was more of a comfort to me um so then for me it just i just get so interested with you just being down there and just being able to kind of kind of get rid of those things in the United States, right? Like, I feel like down there, your material things, right? It doesn't mean as much, I feel like. And that's what I do enjoy about being in Peru. But then I'm always with that weird balance of like, I really want to be down there, but then I kind of really like being here. And then it's just, yeah, even down to the food. So I guess to me, it's so interesting that you've been down there and kind of, like you said, you get to go back. You know, you go back to the United States and things too when you travel around. So that's interesting, but it's, it, to me, like that's just such a giant leap, I suppose, to just dive in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I think it has a little bit to do with just having been alone, right? Um, having had no strings attached in the United States. Yeah, I was about to and say then, that. Yeah. In that retrospect, that's hugely, you know, like thing to make it make a jump like like that too so you know it's, it's unfortunate. kind of having the like an uh like an opportunity to do it Cause yeah because not a lot of things tie you back because you have your family like to a certain extent here like to, if i if i lost my family my, my mom yeah. I, like i just untethered you know like i'd be like I'd, i don't know you know so, so I, yeah but yeah mm -hmm. go on sorry i was just uh <laughs> No, 100%. And to kind of bring this back full circle with what some of the things we were saying before, right? Um, well, with a lot of the things we were saying before, why do you know so much about stuff down here? Did you seek this out? And no, I didn't. Part of it is, you know, was I interested in things? Um, yeah, like a little bit, but would I even be here if my parents were still alive? Would I even be interested in Peru? Would I even be participating in the book club, you know, or on the facebook group and uh, this is something i spoke about recently um in the book club was that you know of the people on that facebook group that we have that's got to be like one percent of all the adoptees in everywhere for that matter there are thousands upon thousands of adoptees so the only thing i would recommend to all of us for that matter is to keep the adoption dialogue going and stuff right um you know there are people with all different views on the biological family the adoptive families but the people that are talking about it right you know that's it's unfortunately so few of a number so small of a number that um you know if, if there are people that are interested in finding out more or want to talk about it you know that the dialogue continues um and yeah it, in terms of me right um yeah no i i definitely would not be here if my parents were still alive um but them dying has also you know done some things which i think my life has become richer as a result so i'm hoping through that and you know my ability to heal down knowing what i need to heal knowing the things that i need in life that um you know my life expectancy goes up also yeah no i was definitely thinking about what you were saying you know to keep talking about like that like because i don't know if specific i can't necessarily speak for all adoptees but especially for like peruvian adoptees you know people from south america i don't know it's we're, we're a different breed within that sect of adoptees yeah and is me even could i say like even american peruvian compared to like european or i don't know maybe even asian um that's just interesting you know my perspective of like 
being like 13 years old, just stumbling across like a Facebook page that was just like a whole bunch of like proving adoptees. I don't know. It's it, like, you know, being able to like have like quality like content of pe- of somebody explaining like how it was like, what, th- what their story was like and just having so many different stories that you can pivot from and just look at. It's not just like a one kind of like, this was me and this is how it is. And if it doesn't line up to your life or you can't relate to it, it's just like foreign to you and you don't understand. You're like, whatever next? Like, I don't really care about this. Um, But that's just interesting. But also I have a, I have one, I do have actually a question that kind of relates to what's your future look like? What what do you have in, what what do you have in mind? What what are your goals for like the next like five to 10 years? Let's say, you know, that that changes all the time. And just like what I was saying with, um, Right. Uh, I, I didn't realize I was going to be here either. You know, um, and I never would have thought that I, uh, you know, would be here right now. Like, um, like, like I was saying before, when I was in the university, I wanted to be a lawyer and everything. Um, and now I'm taking these classes just for fun. And I'm starting to get more into Latin American history, politics, um, just kind of like, you know, how things work down here. And I'm starting to kind of get a little bit more interested in that. And maybe my way of alleviating my adoption guilt might be to do some sort of activism, right? When COVID is over, of course. Um, but just kind of doing something that I think would be able to kind of contribute to the well-being of people down here. Family first, and then we'll see afterward if that can I can spread that to something bigger. Um, definitely, I will definitely continue teaching English. Um, as a second language. And my sister is also in line to potentially get a green card in the United States. That's something we're gonna kind of like look into. We did this back in 2013, actually, at the end of 2013. I'm gonna have to kind of see what would that would entail if I, for example, if I have to be in the United States and working, for example. So those are things that I'm gonna have to take into consideration too um and just keep going and just enjoy the time that i'm down here enjoy the you know time that i'm with the people that i'm with like my sister um and the family that i have down here because you don't know when people are not going to be in your life anymore you know so it's always you know best to take advantage of those times you have with the with people your loved ones before it's too late for sure definitely I feel like that's a solid place to kind of wrap it up here but I think I also like with this like I want to do like a part two and three almost like another time just because I feel like this is like the tip you know like the tip of the iceberg there's so many things to like kind of explore and to talk about it and what I like you know having these conversations is that it kind of leads to other things you know and and I and I enjoy that Definitely, definitely, I definitely see there's a lot more that we can get into. Definitely, uh, jot down ideas or stuff. Yeah, write some ideas down and uh, we can coordinate and I'd be happy to participate again. Awesome. Sounds good. We'll have fun with your homework tonight. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I will talk to you soon. Well, we're meeting again Monday or Tuesday? not too sure i think it's tuesday (laughs) i'm gonna have to design a calendar because i feel like we're always like not sure when we're meeting always like changing yeah but um stay safe and everything right with the second wave of coronavirus i'm gonna do the same um and be well sounds good thank you you too
Thanks. See Take care. See you soon. All right. Bye-bye.